Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com I love that I can see the progress in so many areas making cancer not just taboo topic changing the perception of you know oh it's a death sentence to you know I can do this From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. Throughout the history of cancer advocacy, there are the advocates who made us and the organizations who made us. And one such organization is the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, which is, for all intents and purposes, the good housekeeping meets consumer reports of all cancer standards of care best practices, guidelines, and credibility consensus. Joining me on today's show to speak to all of that and more is my friend Marcy Reeder, Executive Director of the NCCN Foundation, which is NCCN's patient-friendly arm that collaborates with scores of nonprofits to make sure that their information is trickled down to the patient and caregiver communities as a vital support resource. Marcy lost her father to esophageal cancer when she was a young girl, her public service to advance the narrative and the imperatives of access, awareness, and survivorship is a testimony to her passion and character and the very definition of being a cancer advocate. NCCN is an incredible organization that does outstanding work on behalf of millions of people every year, and I hope this episode shines a light on their impact for you, the listener, and the cancer community writ large. Enjoy the show. Marcy, I am so thrilled that you could come join me here on Out of Patience. And for the listeners, you and I go back a million years into the advocacy landscape. And I've always considered you and what you do at the NCCN, we'll get to those acronyms in a bit, just absolute tenets and staples of the purpose of why there is cancer advocacy in the first place. But before we get to any of that, you know when you're friends with someone for so long, you forget that you're on LinkedIn and then you go to LinkedIn you're like, I didn't know they did that. You're a climber. Yes. Let's start with that. <laughs> What's your fear of gravity like? Hey, as long as I'm on a secure rope and I know who's got the other end and I trust them, I'm good. I mean, I just learned what a carabiner was like last week. <laughs> nice. You know, I've been climbing for years. I uh, My parents were climbers, so it was handed down to me. I, I'm not as nimble and as 
in shape maybe as I was when I was younger, but I still enjoy it. And the community is wonderful. So you are from the Delaware River Gap area. We share a love of Route 80 because I went to Binghamton and all of the weird Pennsylvania cities that lie in between Scranton and Jersey. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I guess I had to learn how many S's were in Susquehanna very early on. Otherwise, I wouldn't be accepted in your county. <laughs> right. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, interesting pronounced names in that area. Do you know what it means? I had to look it up. Susquehanna, I do not. It is Algonquin for muddy current. Not very thoughtful or insightful. No, and it's a huge river at parts. I mean, it's 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 huge. It's a lot bigger than people think. <laughs> yes. It's called the Delaware River Gap, not the Delaware River tiny little chasm thing. Right. I, I'm always fascinated also by people who actually do what they went to college and studied. You got an MPH, and then your first gig was actually at the NCI, the National Cancer Institute. How'd that happen? So... You know, it really all goes back to when I was in high school and my father was diagnosed with esophageal cancer and it was a shock. He fought that cancer for three years, lots of surgeries. It was a lot to go through. At that time, there really wasn't much in terms of standard of care treatments for esophageal cancer. It was a lot of surgery just to keep taking things out and some pretty powerful chemo. And unfortunately, he succumbed to esophageal cancer when I was an undergrad. I think that really lit the fire for me. I didn't anticipate having a career in oncology and helping patients and families. But at that time, I had vowed to do something, to volunteer, I don't know, anything to help cancer patients because, of course, the experience that I had made such an impact on me. And I feel like I had something to give to the oncology space. So that set the path for me. And every job I've had, pretty much every job I've had in my career has had some link to oncology. And then, yes, absolutely going to work for Fox Chase Cancer Center and the National Cancer Institute in their cancer information service program was a, a great eye opener to all the things oncology that are going on, not just nationally, but internationally as well. And then you pivoted into direct patient care by working for the cancer support community. And I have a quick story to tell you. So I was diagnosed in the 90s in New York City. And the very first like idea of support I was introduced to was Gilda's Club right here on Houston Street. By the way, don't say Houston Street. We know you're a tourist. If you say Houston Street, it's Houston Street. Just a note to my listeners who may be visiting New York one point after COVID. But with that said, it was my first introduction to a community of other people. Yeah, there were 80. I didn't feel like I belonged there, but the idea was just set in my head. What was it like for you to go and work into that space coming from academia? Yeah, it was definitely a change, but a welcome change. I believe in fate, I guess, or I believe things happen for a reason. So my father, who I'd mentioned earlier, he actually was a psychologist and came from Canada down into the Lehigh Valley area and opened a private practice, um, you know, counseling patients. And one of his early new programs that he brought to the area was this interesting new concept of group therapy and really was a trailblazer at the time to bring together groups of people that had a similar issue or problem, something they were struggling with and having them share 
their stories together to give each other support and guidance and to really make them not feel so alone. And um, that was back in the in mid to late 60s. So I feel like moving to an organization like Cancer Support Community was meant to be. I feel like his guidance was there, hand in it somehow. So moving to an organization that had group support for cancer patients and families seemed like such a natural fit for me. And it gave me kind of another piece of the oncology journey puzzle. Previous to Fox Chase and NCI, I worked for the American Cancer Society. So I kind of had this great opportunity to do survivorship, prevention, and then at Fox Chase, kind of the you know the hospital end of things and the public health angle of cancer. And then going to cancer support community was the psychosocial support piece of the puzzle. And it just made logical sense for me, um, working with patients that would just walk into the building with tears in their eyes, with the deer in a head, headlights look like, I didn't know where to go. I, I you know, I don't know who to talk to. Uh, I, I didn't want to cry in front of my family. You know, I want to be strong. Um, you know, it was definitely a, a, a wonderful opportunity for me. You know, I started Stupid Cancer. I wanted to build a community that I wished that I had had. Do you feel like by taking on this mantle at the cancer support community, it filled in a gap that you might have wished you had as a daughter, as a young daughter whose father was sick? Definitely. I felt like I was the only one at the time that was dealing with a parent that was sick with cancer and that it was so hard for me at the time to process what was going on at the same time that my life was changing, you know, graduating high school, starting college, finding a college, getting into college, um, that transition of moving to college. Um, I definitely felt like I was all by myself. So yeah, I agree. Going to um, an organization that brought people together definitely filled a desire of mine to not let other people feel like I did when my dad was diagnosed. Yeah. And here we are like 30 years later for most of us and the issues of caregiving and and acceptance and having to deal with a sick parent, it's still just an open-ended, giant, gaping scar that is we, – we try to address it. But have you seen – again, we're going to get to where we're at today. Do you think there's been progress for people like us that needed something back then? Is it, is it there for us now more preeminently? For sure it is. You know, I think back in the late 80s, Cancer was still the big C. People didn't talk about it very often. You know, if you were diagnosed, it was a death sentence is what people always thought. And what do you say to somebody when they have a sick relative that, you know, at the time, cancer meant probably you were going to die. So what do you say to somebody in that situation? And I think people didn't know what to say to me. And my dad was loved by so many people. I definitely felt isolated. And I, I love that I can see the progress in so many areas, you know, making cancer not this taboo topic, changing the perception of, you know, oh, it's a death sentence too. you know, I can do this, I can live with this, there's treatments, seeing all of the medical innovations that have been made and the care for patients. What a transformation since my dad was diagnosed so long ago. You know, when he passed away with esophageal cancer or from esophageal cancer, it was really the treatments that, that just took too much out of him. But on his death certificate, it says colon cancer because at the time they didn't have, esophageal cancer wasn't something they 
had a category for, I guess, or whatever. So what really? Yeah. So his death certificate says colon cancer. Did you get the stigma of, was he a smoker? Yeah. A lot of people asked if he smoked, if he drank, you know, and, and it's a, it's a great education opportunity for me because he had acid reflux for years. And that was before the Nexiums and the Prilosex and the, you know, those kind of medications. So um, when you have many, many years of acid reflux making scar tissue in your digestive system, um, only bad things could potentially come out of that. So um, it was a great uh, opportunity for education, but also for me to understand myself and how I had to take care of my own health if I didn't want the same thing to happen to me. Yeah, I was I was told recently by a friend who has been living with type 1 since they're seven years old that the whole, you know, did they smoke question is like telling type 1 diabetics to just eat better. It doesn't work. Right. That's not, <laughs> and how do you counteract that narrative? But yes, everything's an opportunity for destigmatization. Yes, and, and we, we've come a long way with many cancers and some of the other cancers we, we said they'll have a, a ways to go. So from being a young daughter whose father was sick and he ultimately passed away to entering into this, I would say, um, born of your condition career where you felt like what you were doing was not just solving something that you wished you had, but filling a need and a desire to create the change that should be. You then decided to go full throttle into the deep end of the beltway and joined the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. Lots of syllables. We said there would be syllables and acronyms. Were you aware of them? Did they recruit you? How did you find out about them? Because that's a big deal. That's a great question. Um, when I worked at the American Cancer Society back around the turn of the century, they had a collaboration with NCCN on some of the guidelines that were patient-friendly. Now, they weren't really patient-friendly. They were kind of patient-friendly. So it was a rewrite of the clinical information, pretty much just words. I don't remember there being a lot of gra graphics or diagrams or anything, and it was very small print on very thin pages, but it was a great first attempt at bringing to patients this clinical guideline recommendation. And it was, like I said, the first step in trying to provide that information for patients. So I did know about NCCN, but that's all I knew. And um, when I decided to move from working um, at one of the cancer support community affiliates in a region, I had a desire to, like you said, make a bigger impact. I wanted to do something nationally with a national organization. And NCCN happened to be not far away from where I lived. And um, the more I knew about NCCN, the more I wanted to be part of it. And I can tell you for the first year that I was at NCCN, I would constantly learn of new things NCCN was doing because they do so much. And it was like, we do that too, really? And so it was right. a, definitely a good year of discovery of all the things that NCCN does. Back with our guest after the break. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. 
Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm-mm-mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. So let's get into the nitty gritty for our listeners. It sounds super fancy. The National Comprehensive Cancer Network. Wow. Soup to nuts. You do everything. The website's replete with so much information. But what does it all really boil down to? Because there's NCCN and then there's the NCCN Foundation. Where would you like to start? We can start with NCCN because NCCN started first. And it's it's an alliance of big academic cancer centers across the country. Right now there's 30 member institutions and those institutions are are the big names. It's the MD Anderson, Johns Hopkins, Memorial Sloan Kettering, City of Hope, Mayo Clinic, Fox Chase, um, University of Pennsylvania, and Mass General. I mean, that could go on and on. They're the big academic cancer centers across the country and they came together in the early 90s to, to do many things. But really to, to boil it down to what they do is they come together and they put forth experts in all the different areas of cancer to have them come together and create clinical practice guidelines. It's recommendations from the top docs, the sub-subspecialists in all areas of cancer. They come together to figure out what that gold standard of care is, what those recommendations are. And they put it into a document that can be accessed by anybody around the world so that they can know what the current gold standard of care is for whatever type of cancer it may be. So there are, I believe, 59 different NCCN clinical guideline panels. And those panels, like I said, are made up of sub-subspecialists, one from each of our member institutions, at least, multidisciplinary that meet at least once a year, but most of the time, more often than that, any time that there's a change in the standard of care based upon study data, um, a new drug approval, whatever it may be that could potentially change the standard of care, they get together, they talk about it, and they come to an agreement, or sometimes they don't agree, but um, they make a recommendation. That's what sets the standard of care really in the U.S. and around the world. So this is like, top-down leadership or top-down or trickle-down 
wisdom and knowledge to the is it like to the non NCI designated cancer centers or to just every cancer center around the world? Was there ever a sense of why can't we be a comprehensive cancer center or do we get a voice or are we just listening? So the NCCN member institutions are on NCI designated cancer centers and they are the ones who are performing a lot of the clinical trials, the research. So the, the experts that sit on these panels are they only treat their type of cancer or their subtype of that cancer. And they, they really truly know what they're talking about. They know what the latest you know data is saying. Or you can imagine a, phys- or an oncologist in a local, like a, maybe a rural community type of cancer center or hospital, they might not treat just one cancer or just one subtype of one cancer. They may be treating all solid tumors. They may be treating blood cancers. And it's really impossible for one person to keep updated on all the changes to the standard of care of multiple different cancers at one time. So it's not that anybody knows better than anyone else. It's just, you know, if you, I don't know, if you want to get a special type of roof put on your house, you're going to um, go to the, 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 you know, the company or the individual that is the specialist in that area, um, not just you know, somebody who maybe puts siding on houses and says, hey, I can do your roof for you too. If you, if you want to have something done the best it can be done, you're going to go to the person that really just focuses in that one area. That guidance, that written information that can be accessed is, is a crucial lifeline for um, the oncology community because... The, the process is firewalled from outside influence in terms of monies coming from pharmaceutical companies or others trying to, you know, influence the guidelines. That doesn't happen. The guidelines are put together totally uh, with funds coming from our member institutions. And so it's firewalled information that's the best it can be. And And like I said, the oncology community relies on this information to be updated all the time, not only to, to inform um, how patients should be cared for, but also what kind of treatments should be covered by insurance and Medicare and, you know, what is considered a, 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 gr- a good treatment for, for a certain type of cancer and um, what to do in certain situations. You know, the, the guidelines really drill down to all kinds of different circumstances in terms of this patient with this health issue, with these other health issues, with, you know, this specific cancer, with this mutation or whatever it may be, um, this is the best treatment for them. And that's a lot of information for any one person to process. So to have it be a consensus recommendation, always updated, available for free to anyone is incredibly powerful and incredibly important. I love the good housekeeping seal of approval analog to this, and I love that it is completely collaborative and uninfluenced by outsiders who could totally just ruin and corrupt it. That is, there's something to be really said about that. So, in the last couple of years, we've seen so much progress in terms of drug development, immunotherapies, you know, CAR T, PD2s, PD1s. I'm using jargon on the air. Has that created more of a cacophony of how do we make sense of all of this versus when they were just like four drugs on the market? These are all living, breathing documents every single day. But is the complexity getting in the way? Well, that's a great question. 
the complexity is important because we have precision medicine that targets very specific um, treatments to very specific cancers. And what that allows is, is more individualized therapy and treatments that makes people less sick um, when they take it, um, has less side effects, is more targeted. Some of these treatments are incredibly effective. The strides that we've made in many cancers, including like lung cancer is a great example. The, the five-year survival rate for lung cancer has changed dramatically over the last 10 years. That is because of these precision medicines. So we need to keep them coming. Um, we have the opportunity to create these very targeted precision medicines. Um, but yes, it's complex. And it's, again, hard for one person to track all of this information. And so relying on the NCCN guidelines uh, to check and see, you know, where we are and what, you know, what path should I follow with patients? It's created a complex situation, but it, patients benefit. So if we can make sure that, you know, their studies continue and we're targeting uh, uh, medications appropriately, you know, it's only going to end in, in, in great results for patients. The difficulty is that some of these medications cross cancer types. So it could be that you could use a medication for many different cancer types. And so that's interesting too. So yes, it's very complex. And you can imagine if it's complex for medical providers to deal with all this information, how patients feel when they hear all of this information. Yeah, you read my mind because you mentioned before that all this information is available online for free to anybody. But is the average person going to go there and understand this? And or you would know if they do, like what is the adoption rates of regular non-doctor people like us going to the site, downloading information, learning from it and taking that to care? Well, that's why the NCCN Foundation was created. And I, I run NCCN's foundation. And why we are there is because it was identified that there were programs within NCCN that needed support and, and extra attention to gain the funding needed to push certain programs forward. And so, like I said, years ago when I had worked for the American Cancer Society and I saw these NCCN guidelines for patients, when I decided to come to NCCN, we were early on in our NCCN guidelines for patients um, development and um, the library of all of those resources. Just we, we didn't have a lot of cancer types at the time. So basically what the NCCN guidelines for patients are, a lay-friendly, a patient-friendly, a, a you know, patient's family-friendly resource that takes this complex clinical information that's in the clinical practice guideline and adapts it into an easy-to-digest format for patients and families. And so giving the patient and their family a mirror copy, kind of, of the playbook that the physicians are using in a patient-friendly format allows patients to not only know what the standard of care is by recommendations by the top docs in the country for their cancer, but also they can advocate for that care wherever they're being seen and also understand what's next. What do I need to know? Um, if they hear big words when they're, you know, going to their physician, which they will when they're getting cancer treatment, if they want to go back or be able to bring the, the information with them to their appointment so they can walk through, okay, what does this all mean for me? Um, what's going to happen next? You know, what kind of things do I need to know? This book will 
allow them to follow along, to learn, to feel like they have some kind of control in this out of control situation. And so the foundation gets the support to build that that library of patient guidelines and work on updating them and adapting additional clinical practice guidelines into that patient-friendly format. It's a perfect hybrid system. You have one side for the doctors and for the research and the scientists, which if you're a patient and you want to avail yourself of, have fun. But then you have the layperson side that makes it really easy and adjustable by working with the nonprofit communities and direct to the patients themselves. I want to talk about how my most seminal moment with the NCCN was given the all of the fabulous energy coming out of the young adult cancer movement for many, many years in the Livestrong days of the mid-2000s. Years later, you guys had AYA guidelines that are still on your website. Young adult cancer guidelines was like, we made it. We did it. We're there. What was it like for you to see that progress happen in real time? Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing to see when a cancer topic is recognized as needing a guideline. And NCCN every year looks at cancer topics as a whole and, and tries to decide with our, of course, with our member institutions and panel members, we try to decide what new guidelines do we need to produce? You know, what new guidelines need to be available for the oncology community? And there's always lots of need. So trying to figure out which one is, is most appropriate to come next. So it's always exciting to see new clinical practice guidelines post. So for, to have one for adolescent young adults was when it was available, finally, it was, it was about time. You know, it, it was definitely celebrated um, because it sets the standard of care for adolescents and young adults, you know, around the country and really around the world. And so that those age-related guidelines are huge. And NCCN just published, they're starting a, a series of, of pediatric clinical practice guidelines now, which is exciting because at one time, uh, most pediatric patients were treated on a, a cancer clinical trial. There wasn't really a standard of care, but now there is. So it was time to produce these clinical practice guidelines for pediatrics. And we just posted our first patient version, our patient guideline for pediatric um, ALL. So it's really exciting to see that moving forward. And that progress is celebrated. Um, so, yeah, to, to kind of see there's topics that are addressed that are important, like distress or cancer pain or um, palliative care, survivorship. I mean, these are all huge areas in the oncology space that deserve attention. And it's great to have clinical practice guidelines and then in turn patient guidelines to inform what kind of care you should expect. Yeah. And I can't understate this enough to the listeners. Having vertical guidelines per disease is very important, but recognizing the horizontal issues are absolutely fantastic and a testament to progress for everything we try to accomplish as advocates. I also noticed you have guidelines for cancer patients who happen to be living with HIV AIDS. That's mm -hmm. extraordinary. Yes, they're only a couple years old. And um, that was a great addition to our, our library of, of NCCN guidelines, because it's a very specific patient population that needed these guidelines to help guide care. So you do, I mean, outside of COVID land, you have meetings all the time, but now you're doing lots of webinars and workshops. You guys have a mobile app that we would, we'll put a link to in our description for the episode. If anyone listening to this show wants to learn more about NCCN and the NCCN Foundation, 
whether they were a doctor or a patient or just curious, which would be weird. Like, I don't have cancer, but I'm curious. Good luck with that. Where can they go? Sure. So they can go to the NCCN website. There's a clinical side to the website, which is nccn.org. There's a patient side, which is nccn.org slash patients. And they can look at all of the resources we have there. Um, with the patient resources, we have all of our patient guidelines. We have um, a listing of all of the collaborating patient advocacy organizations that we work with, with all of the great links to their programs that they have to try to be most collaborative. And you know what? Believe it or not, we have guidelines for genetic familial and um, prevention, early detection. You'll see um, like breast cancer risk reduction, um, genetic familial breast, ovarian and pancreatic cancer. There's colon screening. So there are guidelines there for people that aren't diagnosed with cancer, but are cancer minded in terms of making sure they're minimizing risk, that they know what their um, genetic predispositions are and that they are getting screened. So I highly recommend going to check out those resources as well. Yeah. Let's get the NCCN's website a little more attention that it deserves. It's a phenomenal and necessary resource that everyone should know about and take advantage of. And our job is to make everyone aware of it. And what a great way to do it. So thank you, Marcy Reeder, Executive Director of the NCCN Foundation, uh, Climber, Algonquin, Muddy Current, Definition Appreciator, and Lover of Wagons. How's that? That sounds fabulous. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Take care. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com. 